Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. I'm killing it on my World Cup bets. I'm Nick Severi. Oh, come on. No, you're not. What? what this is I'm, like I'm, the, four, I'm three for... No, hold on. I'm three for four. I blew the parlay. Three and matches. the U.S. is the team that did me in. But Ecuador nailed it. Netherlands got okay. it. England took it to, took it to task. But my country, your fellow countrymen, yeah. did this in, man, with a 1-1. Did not yeah. help me. Yeah, by the way, Qatar was not favored in that game. Iran was not favored in that game. Great picks there by Hashtag the Hashtag money line, baby. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. On the program today, uh, another tragic shooter. I don't even know how to pivot from that. Maybe from the tragic events that happened in Qatar with, uh, with respect to what they do in that country. Well, here in this country, another tragic shooting in a nightclub out in Colorado Springs. If you hadn't heard about this story, Nick and I will take you inside what happened here from some of the folks that have been on the ground over there, not only covering it, but the police chief, the mayor, they had some recent press conferences. Nick and I will break that all down. Plus, Mayor Garland over the weekend, uh, last week, I believe, announced a special counsel on the former president. Nick and I will get into a little bit of that and what this will mean for former President Donald Trump. Plus, later on the program, Dr. Peniel Joseph will join us. He is the author of The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. He's going to discuss his new book, all the racial reckoning that's happening in this country. Plus, the doctor wrote a good op-ed piece. You can head over to CNN.com to check it out about a potential emerging star of the Democratic Party. More on that in our final segment. Mr. Severi, we know you're watching the World Cup, obviously, from Eastern Pennsylvania. Not getting any work done, sounds like, since the World Cup's on during the day. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what's going on over there in Eastern Pennsylvania. You're away. How's everything? 
you know things are good um now for today for the u.s game i had all in the background as i had you know some other stuff to do obviously um but yeah no just all the action from opening game on sunday it was good my birthday just passed so it just turned 44 um my ladies took care of me it's funny um you know for my birthday dinner i tend to cook my birthday dinner and i this is not meant to be a flex, but I'm a I'm a really good cook. So well, so um, say so, so get, say you, so say you. Hey, we don't any list anytime you want to come for some of the best steak on the East Coast, and I'll put my stuff up against Peter Luger and whomever. Oh come on, um, you, you're damn right. So, but yeah, no, I went out Friday, got the groceries, you know, went to the butcher, got some really good ribeye cuts, had it on the grill. I love grilling in the winter time. It's like forty degrees in you know Easton, but you get on the grill, you put all that together. A delicious meal. Um, but yeah, it was a, a no, it was just a just a fun, reflective birthday. Definitely getting to the point where I don't think so much about gifts because like I have everything I need truly. Um, but also it's it's another year, man. Like I still celebrate it, but it's it just feels different though. But yeah. that's us from Pennsylvania though. But Florida, you family, how are you all doing? I'm good, man. Happy belated, first and foremost. I know you always send me pictures of the steak, by the way. They do look good. I, I don't know about Peter Luger. Peter Luger, if you're listening, you want to help sponsor, can we please talk? Uh, we will happily take that up and throw Nick's steaks in the garbage along with the Trump steaks that he, <laughs> that he probably had before. Um, the, I want to say real quick, um, oh man, I lost my train of thought, but that was so funny. I had it on the Trump steaks there. That was pretty good. Oh, damn. What was I What was I about to say? Wait a minute. I got to cut that out here for a second. Wait a minute. There was something I had transition wise. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else. This all stays in now. I don't remember what it was, but um, we are good in Florida, man. We are just, you know, count my, my wife was over the weekend at a bachelorette party. It's going to funnel into what we're going to discuss here. But, you know, she's out at a nightclub. And then the next day, the news breaks about what happened at Colorado Springs and it's just kind of you were talking about reflecting before. That's what it was. You said something with respect to uh, you have everything you need. Truly, I don't have everything I need. That's why I need. I need to keep working hard. I want to get more stuff. I, I want. I want Peter Luger to help come sponsor this show. We need to get more stuff. So yes, that's what it was that I wanted to say. Um, but anyway, getting into our first segment, kind of. Um, she was telling me, you know, they they all kind of had this reflection moment because they heard about the news as you know, the next morning happened and stuff like that. And then you start, you know, hearing some of the stories from eyewitnesses and things like that. And then you hear about what actually happened. And it's, you know, another mundane routine activity, you know, in a city where you just don't expect this. Although Colorado has had, a, unfortunately, a history with a bunch of mass shootings that have been public from Aurora to Columbine, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, it's just crazy what's happening in the world, man. Let's, let's get into our first segment too. Um, if you haven't heard about what happened with this nightclub shooting that happened um, in a co a Colorado Springs, a man uh, just opened fire at a gay nightclub and he's being held right now on murder and hate crime charges. We're going to get into how the assailant was actually tackled by two people, one, somebody that works there, one that was just there with his family. Uh, five people are left dead. 17 others had 17 others, excuse me, had gunshot wounds. Uh, court records are showing that Anderson Lee Aldridge is the shooter 22 years old he faces five murder charges and five charges of committing a bias motivated crime causing bodily injury in the saturday night attack at club q uh, he's also hospitalized right now with unspecified injuries we're going to get into those injuries in a second uh i want to play a little bit of what the police chief there said recently in a presser take a listen to this 
We are actively processing the scene at Club, Club Q. Initial evidence and interviews indicate that the suspect entered Club, Club Q and immediately began shooting at people inside as he moved further into the club. While the suspect was inside of the club, at least two heroic people inside the club confronted and fought with the suspect and were able to stop, stop the suspect from continuing to kill and harm others. We owe them a great debt of thanks. As the investigation is still in its early stages, we are not going to identify any of the witnesses inside of the club at this time. The FBI is already on scene and assisting with the investigation. You heard the police chief there talking about two heroic people. <clears throat> One of them was Richard M. Fierro. This man served 15 years in the military, and he was with his family at Club Q in Colorado Springs. He was sitting at a table with his wife, daughter, and some friends watching a drag show. Suddenly, gunfire starts ripping. You can check out this amazing piece by Dave Phillips over at the New York Times. And he talks about how his instincts kicked in. The guy had been an army officer in, in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, he just ran straight for the guy, tackled him, took the gun out, beat him over the head. Uh, one of the drag queens was kicking the assailant as well uh, in the head. And funny enough, well, maybe not funny, as police came in after the 911 calls, um, they actually tackled him and detained him because they didn't know who the actual suspect was uh, until they were able to sort that out. Um, raced across the room, man, grabbed a gunman, handle on the back of his body armor, body armor. That's always key in these things. These guys always come in with body armor. And yes, I said, guys, it's never a female. It's always a guy. It's always a white male. Always. We're going to get into that in a second. I don't want to take Nick's thunder because I know he's, he's going to jump on that train. Um, shout out to Mr. Fierro. And, and again, that the, the other person that was helping him um, for really disarming this bad guy with a gun without using a gun. Um, and I say that and you can interpret that however you want. But that's always an argument from a certain uh, faction of people in this country. Good guy with gun stops bad guy with gun. Here's a guy with no gun stopping bad guy with gun. The gun violence archive as of twenty twenty two. As November 21st of 2022, as of this recording, gun violence death, 39,463 deaths. And there's now been 604 mass shootings in this country. Three or more people uh, is what classifies as a mass shooting. Gun violence has risen each year steadily since 2014, since the Gun Violence Archive has been tracking this type of data points. Uh, Nick. Um, boy, you can hear it. You, you can hear it in, in, in me just trying to find the words here, stammering a little bit. But it's the same thing as always. Um, the only difference this time is there's some dots that have been connected to this shooter. Uh, he's the grandson of, of a representative from California. And some of the rhetoric from that grandfather that has made its way into the mainstream some would say that maybe the grandson picked up some of this. There's pictures of him circulating online with a Make an America Great hat on. Um, and he's 22 years old. And here he is armed going into a nightclub in a city that he doesn't live in, by the way. He does not live in Colorado Springs. 
and killing five people and injuring another 17 to 18 people as of this taping. What were some of your initial thoughts when you kind of heard everything uh, play out and um, and saw what was playing out in the news with respect to this story? Yeah. Um, you know, a few things. You know, it's interesting that we. Yeah, that was I mean, it was so much from you know, what we had talked about over the weekend, you know, through text, um, you know, as a country, I mean, the state of Virginia is still trying to heal, you know, from a mass shooting killing, um, you know, three through members of the school, you know, three players on the U- University of Virginia football team. Um, and then we pivot to this, you know, and it's it's heartbreaking because we go through this every single time we go from one mass shooting to the other. And I, you know, whenever we text about it, I often bring up the fact that it's, um, you know, it's it's apple pie, baseball and mass shootings and jazz like these seem to be the the sad exports most prominently of our country. And it shouldn't be that way. But. You know, I can I can speak ad nauseum about gun laws. I won't do it here because you all you all know where I stand on that. And and Mike and I've talked about that enough. But, you know, one thing that's interesting is we're not hearing enough right now about causation. So, you know, I think sometimes when we try to make sense of these mass shootings um, and any type of events like this, you know, there's a part of it that part of us that wants to draw conclusion to climate, you know, what's going on. And I was, I, I did that over the weekend too. You know, I think about, you know, for the last, for the last couple of years, and some will argue for longer, there has just been a very, just very clear animosity to members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, most recently, we have seen the pushback toward, towards transgenders. Um, you know, we've seen, People in you know positions of authority try to ban people um, from receiving therapies, hormone treatments. Um, we have seen governors, other leaders of governments, attempt to basically clear out, you know, what's said to be K five classrooms, but then very magically trickles into middle school. Um, any reference to LGBTQA, and it always comes from this place of indoctrination. That's a popular word here. And it's the idea of, well, we want to protect kids. Kids shouldn't be subjected to this. And the reality is um, it's not about children. It's about adults. It's about people being uncomfortable with what they can't understand. Um, so when you talk about the grandfather you know, and, and, their, and his particular stance, can you draw a through line from that to what we've seen over the last couple of years about just laws, laws, attempts to make it harder or almost impossible for people to receive, um, to receive surgeries and treatment and to pursue their quest of, you know, of recognizing that they're not of the gender of birth. And, and to be clear real quick, not to interrupt your train of thought, but um, this, this kid, Anderson Lee Aldridge is the grandson of Republican assemblyman, Randy Vopel. Randy Vopel represents San Diego County and Riverside County in California's 71st Assembly District. This is according to NPR. Um, he didn't necessarily say anything anti-trans or anything like that publicly, at least not according to uh, sources, outlets, uh, respectively. However, he did compare January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol to the American Revolutionary War. 
and he's worn and he's and he's worn in photos publicly make California great again hats obviously a play on make America great again hats so if you want to bundle everything under just in the interest of fairness he never said anything publicly but if you're bundling it under some of the chief uh, representatives of MAGA like Marjorie Taylor Greene who has like you said been against trans rights and 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 this phobia against trans folks and me and members of that community um then yeah we can put that all under one umbrella but this politician never directly said that i want to make that clear before we get the emails as we normally do um so he never actually said that but uh the he's the the tree's not the, the apple's not too far from the tree as the old uh, expression would go yeah you know we're our guest in the moment talks more about that and i'm just going to tease it there about a, a historical trend about reactionism you know for any moment of progress in this country there is a, a backlash to that um you know we think about the supreme court you know making a decision about um about gay marriage you know a few years back um you know lately we've seen just this a massive blowback you know to members of that community you know it's hard not to remember the shooting at the pulse nightclub in orlando um, and then we see this, as you mentioned, Colorado has a history uh, recently of mass shootings dating back to 1999 in Columbine, uh, the shooting in Aurora, the movie theater in 2012. Um, you know, and this continues to come up more and more, you know, and I say all this because I think sometimes we sometimes we can hesitate. You know, we can say, well, you know, all these things are producing this effect. And then the other argument is, well, just access to guns. You know, this this shooter had a machine gun or semi-automatic. So many other mass shootings had it. So maybe it's just the guns. And I I agree with that. Um, although I respectfully say that if I ever decide to purchase an AR-15 like you, I don't have it in me. I don't desire to harm massive amounts of people. And I'm not saying that simply purchasing a gun means that that's in your intent. I truly do believe in the Second Amendment. I'm not trying to say this to you know, prevent emails from coming in, like send it whatever you want. And we appreciate that you do it. Can we please talk podcast at gmail.com? That's right. But I say all this because I'm, I'm noticing the climate and I'm really concerned that are we, are we creating a space where these dialogues, these willingness to pursue legal action, you know, is it creating a space that just promotes this type of animosity that people like that shooter continue to be inundated with messages that say that members of that community are less than not human um and all ways that we view them as as different from from heterosexuals um and does that create that environment and again this is that whole conversation of you know correlation doesn't necessarily equate to causality and in this case i wonder about it because as a country we struggle with this we cannot have this dialogue right now just like we can really struggle with having a dialogue around race. And when we don't have these dialogues, we don't have tolerance. What we then create is this willingness to engage in violence because we're that angry. And I would ask the shooter, um, like, where where is this coming from? As you said, doesn't live in the community. And it doesn't matter if they're from the community anyway. I mean, in terms of living there, what would prompt you to harm people? For what purpose? It was just just non-discriminatory shooting, walking into a particular nightclub. And let's be honest, I, I would imagine that that nightclub was targeted um, in an attack to harm 
members of a particular community, but why? And that why I think is at the heart of, of this country at this point. Um, yeah, real quick, um, yeah. some takeaways from me. And also we've been saying that he's not, he doesn't live in the community, at least according to uh, reports that we're seeing from the AP uh, and other outlets. Um, he, I think he's from a county nearby. I don't think he's from necessarily that one. Uh, there's El Paso County, which is home to Colorado Springs. So I'm not familiar with Colorado and how close proximity wise. So he may have been like maybe from a town over a county over. I'm not sure. He wasn't necessarily uh, from like where the nightclub is. He doesn't live like across the street from the nightclub. Um, one thing that I found interesting was a year and a half before uh, this person was arrested, uh, Anderson Lee, he threatened his mother with a homemade bomb. He forced neighbors into surrounding homes to evacuate while the bomb squad and crisis negotiators talked him into surrendering. This was a year and a half ago. And despite that, there was no public record. This is all according to the Associated Press that prosecutors move forward with felony kidnapping and menacing charges that nothing. So Colorado's red flag law would have allowed authorities to seize those weapons that he had at his house. But because there were no charges brought up on this, by the way, how, like how are no charges brought up when somebody initiates a bomb scare and the block has to <laughs> vacate uh, and police are summoned and bomb squad, bomb squad units are summoned. Um, I don't have, I have no idea. I don't know how somebody could get away with that. We can leave that to debate uh, for another time, but it's not clear if the law would have done anything, but it wasn't triggered because this wasn't reported or at least documented, whatever it is. So they never moved forward with this felony kidnapping and menacing charges. And now here we are a year and a half later and he commits this. The thing that has stood out the most to me in all of this is, and you guys know, if you listen to this show, first off, thank you for, for your loyalty. But um, we have done mass shootings ad nauseum here. We've covered the Buffalo shooting and we had Natalie Famion from ABC seven up there with all day. And I'm the was from PBS, her chief correspondent now, uh, now going to be taking over news hour. Shout out to her. She was down there in Ovalde covering this. We've had people on the ground in other places that have covered these shootings. And we've had people that have written books on the profile of shooters and, and we've had uh, legal analysts on talking about gun laws and we've done all we can to talk about this, but it's real simple at the end of the day. I've said this a bunch of times. Uh, one common denominator is used in all of this. It's not a joystick from a PlayStation. It's not a CRT book from some made up class or a syllabus. Uh, it's a gun. It's a gun. Nick is very adamant. No, no, no. We, we, uh, you're free to have guns. Yes, you are. You are free to have guns. That's correct. However, like I've made the analogy to golf clubs, if if people tried to take my golf clubs away because somebody was using a, a particular driver that I have to murder and kill people, I would be more willing to surrender it for the greater good. Nobody lives in that greater good for some reason. I don't know why. And what we're seeing now is hypocrisy by somebody like Lauren Boebert, which, by the way, no idea how she won re-election, first off. But second off, no idea why that guy conceded when there's less than 650 votes that separates them still with 1% less in the precinct. I digress on that point because she posted on Twitter that the news out of Colorado Springs is absolutely awful. 
my my thoughts and prayers to the victims and families as in, as is as is commonplace with those and then she wrote this lawless violence needs to end and end quickly to which she got a bunch of responses saying you have played a role in elevating the anti lgbtq plus hate rhetoric and that came out from aoc this is coming from me now i mean we all saw you tweet photo with your four kids with with ar15s so thoughts and prayers are meaningless to us uh, when you say something like that. Again, this is not an R&D thing, folks. We need to stop with that. This has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. You want to own a gun? Cool. You, you, you don't want me to lump you in with the rest of the sensible gun owners? All right, great. I get all that. Do you not see what is happening here? That there is one particular weapon. This kid had an AR-15 again. Just like every other single person that we have talked about with respect to these incidents where there are mass shootings, just like the New York Times uh, headline article, if you recall, where it said it gave all the commonalities and it's the same sentence over and over. The, the authorities uh, arrested this person that had an AR-15, blah, 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 blah. If you saw that famous headline from the New York Times and it was on the front page of their Sunday edition, it's just one common denominator in all of this. Take out the fact that you own multiple guns, you like going shooting, and this is part of your heritage. Take out all of that. Because when the day comes, when it comes that this happens to somebody you know and love and trust, what do you want the response to be from people like Nick and I and others? Do you want thoughts and prayers? Or do you want some type of legislation that would have prevented that person from killing somebody you love? I would think you want the latter. And if you want the former, you need to email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. Explain to me why you need the former and don't want the latter. And if you just say, I don't care about people, I would rather you say that. But this is getting out of hand where each time we come on these episodes and we give you the statistics and you hear from the people that, that have to get up there and give a speech and talk about the responders and the victims and the loss of life here. It's the same thing. If this is the same, this is like law and order SVU. We already know what happened. We already know we, we could wrap this up. This is, we don't need a full hour. And we're having this over and over again and nobody wants to do anything about it. And you got people like Lauren Boebert at the center of this. And now my ire is more towards that person because there's, there's a person that has tweeted out her kids shooting AR-15s. This is a person that has said, literally, in open campaign ads, I'm bringing my guns to D.C. As if it's some measurement of like, I don't know what. And now you want to tweet out something about, you know, mourning for the victims and the lives lost. You're, you're at the central cause of a lot of this, a lot of this, because this is not necessarily her district, but this is the state you represent. You could do something about it. Not me and Nick. You could do something about it. You've chosen not to. One more point to you before we move on to our next segment. Yeah, I, I let off <clears throat> talking about you know correlation and causality. So, you know, if you're seeing that the prevailing weapon that's responsible for these atrocities is the same weapon, it would beg to reason that you'd want to go in, you'd want to investigate what happens if we remove that weapon. More importantly, what happens when we re remove weapons that possess that magazine cap capability? You know, getting rid of assault rifles, which again, in this country up until 1994 was actually in place. There was an assault rifle ban um, and it worked quite successfully. You know, as far as con soon to be, you know, returning to Congress, um, 
your Congresswoman Bo Bear is concerned. Yeah, it's it's just two faced. You can't say thoughts and prayers. It's one thing if you listen, I, I said a moment ago, if you want, if I want to own an AR-15, fine. I'm also OK with the government saying, hey, we got we're taking that back. I'm good with that, too. Um, but if you're going to say we're mourning the loss and you're the same person that brandishes this weapon that talks about all, you know, talks about bringing your guns to D.C. and like you're putting yourself forward as an image of a person who's OK with this particular weapon, it really looks just completely duplicitous to want it both ways. Fine middle ground like we're doing here. Congresswoman Bobert, and feel free to come on the show because I, I I would be up for a conversation about this. What is the middle ground here? Because every time you voted, you bear you don't you don't address this, so you really don't care. So that really is hollow when you come forward, like Ted Cruz and so many people in the past have done this to say thoughts and prayers because you are a person who could be taking action. I'm not trying to repeat what Mike said. The little twist here is, you know, there is a middle space. You can have reasonable gun reform. But so many of these conservatives will have none of that conversation, none of it. And that's what's partly playing a role in the fact that as a country, we can't get right with this. And now we've have another another loss of life because of our inability to find common ground. Yeah. Well, first off, Lauren Boebert, Lauren Boebert, stop saying Boebert. It's Boebert. Uh, Lauren Boebert, you are not invited on this show because we don't deal with disingenuousness. I, I, I don't want confrontation no journalism that's not what the purpose of this show is so no she is not invited on this program because similar to what representative seth moulton said and we're going to have another congressman on uh in the coming weeks uh in representative jamal bowman but uh they have mentioned and i'm sure bowman will mention this but moulton mentioned this why would i work with ted cruz on something he's not a serious person those are his words a sitting member of congress talking about now again different chamber but why would I work with that person on something? He's not serious about it. And I know it. I see it every day in D.C. We've had reporters, congressional reporters come on here. Tell us about what these people say on camera, on Twitter, what they look like off camera, what they say off camera, off of social media. They're not the same. I don't want to live in the disingenuousness. So Lauren Boebert, there was never an invite extended. Pretend that Nick never said that. But also my problem is... Uh, it's not about common ground. It's about right, wrong, and being serious about doing something. That person now realizes that it's about getting elected and getting reelected. And she's placating to, and again, I don't know the makeup demographically of what's happening in Colorado or how she's gotten 50% of the vote there and how she led a candidate who was very, and he said it himself in some of the debates, he's very centrist. Like he's very not this, you know, very like moderate dem, almost more uh, to the center because he wants to get back to policy. He talked about a couple of different things that she voted down, didn't even vote on the baby formula bill. Like this is a guy who was like, I want to get back to policy. What I've said a bunch, right? Just he's running for office. And so here's a guy that wants to do something about it. And here's a person that's being disingenuous and just knows now that it's really just about building her brand and it has nothing to do with what she does for the people of Colorado as evidenced by pushing out a tweet that is as hollow as the work that she's done in Congress. Nothing has gotten passed. We leave it there on that um, more on that story as it develops um, and we find out more about what happened and the subsequent trial uh, with respect to the shooter. We'll be covering more on that later on in the year and into the new year. 
Let's move into our second topic, Nick, before we go to the break. Um, if you didn't hear about this, obviously, we talked about in our last episode, former President Donald Trump announcing his run for presidency again. And with that, obviously, there are some pending investigations. You made a theory. Other shows have made this theory as well, that he's doing this to make it look a little bit tougher to prosecute, at least from the Department of Justice standpoint. We've talked about this with former FBI officials and former State Department folks that have been on the program about what this would look like, right? Especially a person that's running for the highest office in the land and now is, let's say, indicted by the current president uh, who would be his political opponent in the upcoming 2024 uh, run for presidency. Well, Merrick Garland announced uh, on Friday of last week that former Public Integrity Chief Jack Smith is going to oversee as special counsel to Justice Department's criminal investigations into former President Donald Trump. There's two currently that are in in the FBI DOJ um, in the world, excuse me. Uh, one is about the mishandling of classified documents and presidential records, whether it's espionage or espionage related. We'll find out. Uh, and obviously the FBI executed that search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. And then the other one was with respect to the, the January 6th investigation and the DOJ's ongoing investigation into that. Here's what Merrick Garland said this past Friday, if you didn't hear from the attorney general. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Such an uh, an appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. If you don't know a little bit about um, uh, Jack Smith, excuse me, uh, Smith was, he's been a career prosecutor. He was a chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague, charged with investigating and adjudicating war crimes in Kosovo. He's been with the Justice Department since 99 as a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. Uh, He moved to the International Crime Court in 2008, like I mentioned. And then he was with the Public Integrity Office of the Justice Department in 2010. So he's been named now special counsel to kind of go over this. Um, And Trump also addressed the special counsel appointment uh, during an event Friday evening of last week at Mar-a-Lago. He called the investigation the usual uh, buzzwords, a hoax, a witch, a witch hunt, uh, using all the same language that he used during the impeachment proceedings. Um, obviously, we know the special counsel history with respect to former President Trump and why he would be saying that because of Robert Mueller and the investigation and ties between the Trump campaign and, and Russia during the 2016 presidential race. Uh, Nick, you and I were texting a little bit about this uh, because a legal analyst, again, with the holidays coming up and stuff like that, we'll have one coming up in in, in a few weeks. But um, talking about some of this and how this is going to go, this seems now that it's even going to move at a slower pace because with a special counsel now and the office that will be set up and all the folks that will be, you know, kind of working now and reporting to this person, whatever he does, eventually he still has to present to the AG to get sign off whether or not that leads to a criminal indictment with the two avenues with respect to January 6th stuff. And then obviously the sensitive documents that were found in Mar-a-Lago. What are some of your takeaways there from attorney general Garland there talking about appointing a special counsel? 
Yeah, I, it's it's probably one of the boldest things he said. You know, I think we've been all critical. Uh, we've had Ellie Honig here, who's qu- openly, I mean, questioned. You know, um, you know, Garland's intentions or sort of his strategy, um, and now it just seems very open to the fact that we are we are looking at Robert Mueller 2.0. Yeah, when it's so, you know, we're going through another inquiry. I mean, just in isolation, folks, I want you to think about this. You've had a a former president who is impeached, um, you know, by the House, um, has now going to will now be the subject of two (laughs) special investigations by two special prosecutors. And it's wild to me that there are some people who believe that this is all part of some conspiracy. Like there's no real evidence to get, you know, go after former President Donald Trump. Anyway. Tying to this, though, the thing that stands out to me is that the January 6th committee, you know, this came up from an interview, um, you know, just the other day, is going to be releasing all the evidence within a month. So I feel like I keep coming back to this correlation causality thing, right? So here's the attorney general saying that they're going to now, they have appointed a special counselor to, to go further into this investigation. At the same time, January 6th committee says, we're releasing all the evidence. Well, what do you think is going to happen with that evidence? It's going to be reviewed by by the special counsel, you know, by special counsel. It all feels like the long game that I think I've talked about with Merrick Garland is starting to play itself out. You know, all this evidence we've seen from the committee since its first hearing in July of 2020 of this year is now about to be laid bare before someone, not the attorney general, but whose sole goal is to determine if the former president play is you know play has a has a role of culpability in inciting what happened on January 6th and at the same time what is the level of culpability for keeping confidential documents you know outside of the white house it this all seems to just tie together and i'm just fascinated by it because now you know for jack smith you know again just working by himself and it's a little like robert Mueller. but here's the big difference though at the f- end of the mu- f- the findings from the special prosecutor from you know Robert Mueller's office was the realization that you know Mueller's team could not indict a sitting pres- president that was the precedent that was established and basically you know and again Bill Barr's summary of this is you know ridiculous at best but the realization was Congress could do something that was what Bob Mueller was trying to, to say. He himself can't do anything against a sitting president. Congress could do something. Well, now Congress won't because you know you have a House majority of Republicans, which is going to be fascinating because with those committees headed by Republicans, Jack Smith may as well get himself a room in Washington at a hotel because he's going to be getting called quite often. And it's just going to be an attempt by Republicans to try to obfuscate the investigation. However, with this current attorney general, this is going to continue as this. And I say all this, Mike, and I'm like, you know, frothing in the mouth because there's going to be so many opportunities for us to talk to so many legal experts about what Smith is about to be partaking in. But the big difference is going to be that in this particular case, this is not a sitting president. This is a public citizen. He may be running for president, but he's a private citizen. If the findings tell us that there's enough to move forward, which I think that's kind of what the January 6th committee has been saying, it's going to be fascinating because at the same time, politically, all of Trump's supporters are just going to look at this and say, well, here we go again. They're trying to go after our guy. And I'm interested because for the party, which seems to be 
splitting a little bit. You have factions that are not supportive of the president. Go look at the cryptic tweets from, you know, from Mike Pompeo, for example. What's going to happen? What about those folks? You know, where are they stand on this? Are they just going to suddenly come back into Trump's camp? You know, with the, the with what's going on, or do they maintain their distance? You know, we've seen. I know Ron DeSantis uh, recently over the weekend said nothing about this, and saying nothing is actually like saying something. Um, <laughs> you know, are folks privately hoping that something will happen to maybe take you know Trump off the board? You know, running for president, but you know, twenty twenty three just got a whole lot more interesting. Yeah, Josh Hawley even said something publicly about supporting Ron DeSantis and thinking that. You know, former President Trump is, you know, no longer uh, of the party. Yes. One more. Last thing I'll say here is, you know, Bill Barr um, has said, at least on a couple of occasions that he, and this was before the announcement, you know, about the special counselor, um, that he thinks there's enough evidence to move forward. Wait, wait, wait. let's play the clip. I, I personally think that they probably have the basis for legitimately indicting the president. I don't know. I'm speculating. speculating yeah. But but given what's gone on, I think they probably have the evidence that would check the box. They have the case. I mean, there you go. Wow. Straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, folks, this is like magic to cream right there. You all <laughs> saw that? That's that's that, I was that's about not even the- editing. Like, literally, I'm just bringing this up and Mike's like, I got you. Yeah, I was about um, to. I was literally about to bring that up as my final point before <laughs> signing off. It's true, though. He said that publicly. And again, uh, the comments section underneath that is even funnier because they're like, oh, man who obstructed uh, before now says that they got the goods on it. So uh, we leave it there. You can read if you're watching on YouTube, you can see Ellie Honig's fantastic book, Hatch- Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr uh, corrupted the Justice Department. You can go check out that book wherever books are sold. Ellie does a great expose on the former attorney general. And now, obviously, Bill Barr has his own book out. But yeah, he did say that publicly recently on a couple of different interviews. I forget what networks he was on. Uh, but we'll see how this plays out with Jack Smith and the special counsel. Like I said, legal analysts in the coming weeks uh, for this show. So that way we can get more into the weeds on a bunch of the legal news that's happening. These, these two uh, topics here in our first segment we're both with respect to the legal community. So we leave it there. Uh, when we come back after the break, Dr. Peniel Joseph uh, will be joining us. He wrote that fantastic book, The Third Reconstruction. A bunch of different things playing out from this racial reckoning that we've had in this country. But not only that, the historical movements that have happened in this country from the first, the second Reconstruction. Dr. Joseph is going to take us inside all of that. And then a fantastic op-ed piece he wrote over on CNN about a rising star, in his view, for the Democratic Party for 2024 and beyond. Dr. Peniel Joseph, when we come back after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is presented by Fresh Roasted Coffee. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com. Use the promo code CANWEGET20 at checkout. You get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. Dr. Peniel Joseph is joining us here. He is the author of The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. He's also the founding director at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy over at the University of Texas. Just a short drive from my sister over there in Texas. I was telling the doctor about that earlier. Dr. Joseph, Mike Leon, uh, Nick, Nick Savary, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Oh, Mike, Nick, it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, Dr. Joseph, you and I were talking before uh, off air. We're just talking about a bunch of different things that are playing out uh, throughout the country. And we're going to get into a bunch with you because you've written some op-ed pieces over on CNN about some things that have shaken out in the political space. Uh, first, I want to get into the book that you wrote, um, you know, Racial Reckoning that unfolded in 2020. We were just talking about it off air, about some of the crazy nonsensical things that we were hearing from family members in 2020. And obviously, what happened with the brutal murder of George Floyd. You draw some connections. You discuss different events in the book that's played out over the last 10 years from the election to Barack Obama, the failed assault on the Capitol. Tell us, uh, tell our audience that's listening right now about the book and what made you want to write it. Well, thank you for having me both. Um, you know, I think the book is really about these narratives, um, you know, Mike and Nick. Like, I feel like I'm 50 years old. I feel like at bottom, I'm a storyteller. You know, like I think I'm from Southside, Jamaica, Queens, you know, born in Manhattan, toddlered in Brooklyn and raised in Queens. So I'm New York City just through and through. Um, know all the all the boroughs except for Staten Island. Yeah, say. everybody does in New York. <laughs> from inside and out except for Staten Island. Probably only been there a couple of times on the ferry. But um, I'm a storyteller and I get that from my mother. I was raised by, um, you know, a Haitian immigrant who became a citizen in 1976. I talk about this in the book, but I think that um, all of us who are scholars, who are intellectuals, we have to understand that what we're doing is trying to tell stories. And so in this book, I try to tell my story and the story of the country simultaneously through these three periods of reconstruction. Basically, what I argue is that since 1865, since the Civil War, the country has been fighting it out over two stories. One is a reconstructionist story uh, of supporters of multiracial democracy. They believe in folks who are Black, white, Asian, indigenous, queer, disabled, women, men, all of it, right? They just say all of us are in this together. 
And the other are redemptionists, followers of the lost cause who really believe and advocate in white supremacy. But the lost cause, Mike, Nick, it's bigger than white supremacy because what the lost cause allows people to do is feel good about lynching, about segregation. You can still be a Christian and kill people. You can still be a good father and mother and disallow blacks and browns and queers from your PTA meetings and from your neighborhood and from you, you can still be a good person, but you're the one who rallied to make sure they closed down the public swimming pool so your kids didn't have to swim with those kids, right? And so, you know, I, I wanted to tell the story, those stories and 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 why those stories in different time periods have had different resonance. So during the first reconstruction from 1865 to 1898 the redemptionist story wins out. And that's how we get what's called Jim Crow. We get racial segregation. We get the lynching of not just Blacks, but Puerto Ricans, Greeks, Portuguese, Jews, the whole gamut we get. Um, Chinese Exclusion Act, Native American dispossession. We get it all, all of it, right? Um, but during the second Reconstruction, 1954 to 1968, Reconstructionists win the narrative war and you get not just Dr. King and Malcolm X, but Rosa Parks and Angela Davis and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker, but also Dolores Huerta and also uh, Yuri Kochiyama and also Grace Lee Boggs, uh, also Cesar Chavez. You get all this stuff all together, Gloria Steinem, um, Angela Davis. And during the third reconstruction, you really see this titanic battle, this narrative war continuing between the supporters of people like Barack Obama and Black Lives Matter and the supporters of Donald Trump, MAGA, Tea Party, now Ron DeSantis, right? So I was just trying to figure out like, why is this, why does this keep happening to us? And, and so I broke it down. And I think this third reconstruction is filled with these juxtapositions where on the one hand, you got the first black president, you got more Black and Latinx and Latino, Hispanic, Asian American, Pacific Islander, women, Native American, um, elected officials, people with wealth, celebrities, movie stars, athletes than you ever had in the history of the United States. And on the other hand, you've got more people who are part of militias and racial terror and threats and segregation and, and wealth inequality and immigrant bashing and Islamophobia than you ever had before, right? And so it becomes, how do you figure this out? Which America are we? Are we the reconstructionist America where you have Dr. King and the I Have a Dream speech and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama? Or are we the redemptionist America where Trump says, make America great again, but it doesn't mean make America great again for me and you, it's just for white people and, and maybe even people of color who wanna be part of this, this, this marginalizing people, oppressing people, uh, disrespecting people, not people, not letting people have dignity or citizenship, right? And so the book is really about that. And how do we make sense of all that? And I wanted people really in a short book to be able to basically get the last 160 years of our history and why it matters. Hey, Dr. Joseph, something I thought about as I was reading your book was you bring up an interesting point. You know, the the second re reconstruction is a narrative that ultimately seems to be went out by you know the argument for for civil rights and you know of of that but it seems also that part of that narrative is where we see the rise of say president nixon you know and make america great again as you mentioned is you know where we first see the appearance or at least at the presidential stage of ronald reagan 
it sounds like uh, politically and legally speaking, it seemed like that conservative argument ultimately sort of drips through, you know, in the legacy of civil rights. Because when you mentioned Dr. King, you know, just as someone educated in the U.S., like like Mike as well, right, and yourself, you know, we see folks like Dr. King distill down to just a 30 second blip from the the March on Washington speech. And, you know, oftentimes Malcolm X is not really taken into that conversation in terms of really the message from the autobiography. Um, but instead, you know, the idea of a militant, quote unquote, how do you see that just historically we've gotten to a place where that narrative has been has been monopolized and manipulated to a point where it kind of watered down what seemed to be the purpose of the second reconstruction, or at least its legacy to this day? No, I agree with everything you said, Nick. You know, I think that the juxtapositions are this history, right? So during the first reconstruction, you get 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. And um, that's the end of racial slavery, birthright citizenship, and voting rights for Black men. And you get uh, Black entrepreneurs, Black churches, historically Black colleges and universities, uh, educators, Black women and men who become these huge figures. Like, um, I talk about them, you know, everybody from Ida B. Wells uh, to to Frederick Douglass, uh, 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 Francis Harper, um, Mary Church Terrell. There's just so many. Uh, but you also get the rise of the Klan. The Klan is founded the same year as Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. So we always have this, this redemptionist drift baked into concepts of the American dream, which is how you get Rosewood and Tulsa and Chicago and Elaine, Arkansas in the early 20th century. But I also talk about Memphis and New Orleans and these racial pogroms against Black people that begin in 1866. And they're in Hamburg, South Carolina. It's in Mississippi. Uh, I end the first Reconstruction with the white massacre against Black people in Wilmington, North Carolina on November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And one thing, Nick, just to show you a postscript, in the book's epilogue, I look at the fact that Joshua Halsey, a 44-year-old Black man who was murdered and left in an unmarked grave in Wilmington, was buried in 2021, reburied ceremony, the whole thing in Wilmington, where the city acknowledges that this happens. And Wilmington has tried to acknowledge it really over the last two decades. There's been a commission, there's been different books about it, but um, really the David Zucchino book, Wilmington's Lie, which won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago, has been really big in terms of really giving you a blow-by-blow blow account of how they get you know tens of thousands of, of militia uh, just descend onto Wilmington. Wilmington goes from being basically a majority Black city to even now 6 or 7% Black, right? And so when we think about that redemptionist drift, Nixon and Strom Thurmond and George Wallace, you're always going to get some of that. It's never been completely eradicated because we never uh, punished the Confederacy um, in the manner that we should have. You know, we we didn't we didn't um, we defeated the army, but we didn't defeat the ideas, right? And, and I would argue that even with Barack Obama and Barack Obama's vision of American exceptionalism, which I'd love to talk about, um, there's a redemptionist drift baked in to the extent that he was not a radical reconstructionist like Black Lives Matter, right? You still had to color in the lines. There was a politics of respectability that haunted Obama. 
which is why Obama used to player hate on black folks. He used to come out to Morehouse and he told the Morehouse graduating class to be good fathers. He was talking about black deadbeat dads. In a way, he would never tell white folks at Barnard and Columbia and other places where he did it. So we were disrespected. We were disrespected. And I can say it as somebody who has, I admire Obama. I've got love for Obama. But if you're a critical thinker, you've got to be able to critique the, the folks too, right? So that's the reason why he could get away with that is that there's a redemptionist drift that unless Black people are completely innocent, have never done anything wrong in their lives, they can't be saved, they can't be rescued, their lives don't matter. And that's why I love BLM. BLM is imperfect like all of us, but it made the argument that unless all Black lives mattered, we were in trouble. Right. So it's that struggle for citizenship and dignity. But there's always a redemptionist drift baked into all these uh, periods of reconstruction. And we can see it right now with the law and order backlash, the critical race theory backlash, the voter suppression backlash. So it's always there where you're saying when black people demand freedom, people say no. OK, that's the first thing. So before we said abolish the police and abolish prisons, we said abolish slavery. And there was a huge backlash to that. They said, no. You know, the, the timing of, of your appearance, it's hard to ignore the fact that we just saw, we just heard the announcement, um, you know, of Donald Trump running again, or at least putting himself out there to running in 2024. And what you're saying reminds me of this idea of the, like the redemption narrative continues. And you mentioned a very key word here about punishment, that what happened, that what didn't happen coming out of the first reconstruction to the Confederacy, which is the legacy living today about not um, punishing really that movement. And, you know, to some extent, you know, those who soldiers to some more or less, um, where's the lack of punishment here? Because you, know, you have someone who attention attempted essentially to overthrow government has faced no legal ramifications. He has not been brought into a courtroom and now stands to walk, walk into 40%. Of the popular vote that's i mean that's a given where is your just if you can explain your stance like this punishment narrative too or the punishment opportunity seems to rear again in terms of combating the redemption narrative you know there's never accountability when we think about these periods for redemptionists right so president andrew johnson the first president to get impeached so he's got that in common with trump and our first trumpian president pardoned thousands of, of Confederate generals and soldiers who, you know, Nick, Mike, they went on to become legislators. They, be on, they went on to resume ownership of cotton plantations. They went on to become some of the masterminds behind convict lease system, which is the forerunner of mass incarceration. And just for the audience, what the convict lease system did was put Black women, kids, and children, and men children as young as eight, nine, 10 years old on chain gangs to work in coal mines and tar pits uh, and, and, and lumber yards uh, for municipalities that then paid a tax to local cities. You lasted barely seven years in the convict lease system, not before you were let out, before you died and expired, okay? So, so that's what they set up in our communities and so there's been no accountability since the first reconstruction for these lost causers. And if anything, what that lack of accountability does is allow uh, at times white conservatives and white liberals and progressives to get together, 
right? After a while, people get tired of the racial problem. That's what they call it, right? They get what I've written before. They get racial fatigue. They don't want to talk about civil rights and human rights and, and anti-racism, right? In the 19th, 20th, and 21st century. So what you find is that uh, former uh, allies um, become collaborators with the lost cause. And you'll find that in the context, some people who are supporting critical race theory or supporting anti-racism in 2020 are anti that now, right? Including companies and different things. They turn on a dime. Frederick Douglass said it best. He said, war between the whites um, allowed for the manifestation of black freedom. And during reconstruction, he said, now what will peace among the whites bring? Because what the peace between the Democratic and Republican parties bring was really a long century of racial terror for Black folks. So we always have to be wary. And that's why people get upset with the Joe Manchins and the Kirsten Cinemas. But you have to always be wary uh, with um, multiracial alliances, because historically, when whites withdraw from those alliances, Black people are left vulnerable to punishment and systems of death and deprivation and dehumanization, denigration, demonization. And in certain ways, we've already seen that shift from 2020 when everybody, including corporate America, was saying Black Lives Matter and racism, Black Lives Matter. And we've seen the pullback from that in really two and a half years. Yeah, very well said on that front. Um, there's so much we're going to get into. Uh, you, you mentioned CRT. We're going to get into that in a second. Uh, I was mentioning to you as well about the op-ed piece that you wrote on, on Maryland's first black governor in history. And I know you have a relationship with Wes Moore. Uh, I want to get into something you are teaching and living in the state of Texas. I live in the state of Florida. These states have had governors reelected that have argued about the way race should be taught banning certain books, introducing legislation, what have you, with respect to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, both of these governors, by the way, reelected. In, in your state, in your teachings over at the University of Texas, are you seeing any glaring omissions or maybe falsehoods in, in your students' knowledge about the history of race in the U.S. and the role that race has played in the U.S.? And also, is is your book on the ban list? Uh, I didn't. I don't think it is, but what would you say to that if your book was on the ban list from one of these governors? In terms of K through 12, I definitely see the gaps. There's huge gaps in K through 12 about knowledge of slavery, racism, anti-Semitism, just the history, the bitter parts of our history. And one of the things I've advocated uh, following Dr. King is to tell the bitter and beautiful parts of the struggle uh, in, in the United States. So the most patriotic thing we can do is tell the whole panoramic history. So you tell the history of slavery, but you also talk about the history of abolition and Du Bois's talk of abolition democracy. You talk about a history of uh, Black women and Native American women, Hispanic women being abused, sexually assaulted, dispossessed, but also the histories of them organizing uh, in defense of themselves, right? And that's why by the the 1990s, Black women coined the term reproductive justice, right? And so we have to tell that fully well-rounded story. But no, the book banning is connected to the lost cause and the authoritarianism and the proto-fascism of the Confederacy all the way up until the present. And what I would say to the folks who would ban a book like The Third Reconstruction or my previous book, The Sword and the Shield, which uh, Disney is making into a series, by the way, Disney Plus. That's uh, right. So they've already started casting. They, they started filming in Atlanta last month, actually. I'm one of the uh, consultants on that. But I would say that 
the beauty of America at its best, and it, this is a reconstructionist vision of America, is a story that is inclusive, um, warts and all. It's it's the good, the bad, the ugly, right? And we are striving to become a better country, but we can't become that better country if we don't talk about our past and contemporary missteps. As James Baldwin reminds us, history is something that is ever present. It's something that we are co-creating together. The lies we're all leading is based on the history uh, of previous generations, but it's also based on the narratives we tell ourselves about that history. If we tell ourselves an actual accurate narrative of that history, we can actually do better and produce better outcomes. If we produce a mythology around that history, make America great again, uh, the greatest generation, Tom Brokaw, but we don't want to talk about segregation in the military. My boy, Matt Desmond has a brilliant new book, Half American, about black folks in the military during World War II. Another one of my friends, Tom Guglielmo, has a great book called Divisions about racial segregation in World War II as well, right? So I read all this stuff. Like I'm, I'm, I read all, all, whatever it is, you got it, I read it. And we have to tell that full story. So you can have a story where you look at Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy and the civil rights movement, but you better look at Fannie Lou Hamer saying, is this America, the land of the free, home of the brave, where we are beaten and threatened uh, for trying to be free and dignified citizens, right? You got to tell the bitter and the beautiful. Uh, if not, you become um, the kind of authoritarian state that we used to push back against. But now we have a Republican Party, GOP, uh, authoritarian party that is in bed with Vladimir Putin, that wants to be part of this authoritarian, Bolsonaro, um, um, anti-human uh, a perspective that is really taking over parts of the world, right? So those of us who are willing to speak truth to power, uh, we have to be assertive and courageous in knowing that the moral and political good is telling the truth about our history. And that's the highest test of patriotism and love of country is your ability to criticize that country. Dr. Joseph, you know, you mentioned a moment ago about critical race theory, and it seems since 2020, you know, in, in this quote-unquote racial reckoning that we had. And I say quotes, obviously, because of especially the way companies and corporations sort of manipulated that. Um, what we, we started to see from conservatives was the threats or putting out this idea that critical race theory is being taught in K-12 settings, which obviously it's not. Um, what's been your experience of trying to combat that with reality? And because you were mentioning before about the gaps in K-12 education, but just yeah. as a professor, what's been your experience of, of seeing that discourse play out nationally? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. You know, what I would say is that first, critical race theory is something that is taught in a few um, of the top elite uh, law schools in the United States of America. So like UCLA, Kimberly Crenshaw, and all it is was um, coming out of um, a field of legal inquiry called critical legal studies. And what critical race theory, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, others have argued is that race is a central part of the law and lawmaking and legal history in the United States of America. So that that we have to say, that's all that that is. That was kind of subversive for legal studies because legal studies tends to be a very conservative field, right? But critical race theories is not always Black history, Chicano history, Latinx history, queer history. It's really not. And so we have to say, what is it and what isn't it? 
And so the whole CRT, I call it the CRT hoax, Nick, against truth teaching was conservatives were attacking the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a brilliant black journalist from Ames, Iowa, uh, who, excuse me, from Waterloo, Iowa, because both her and my boy, um, Curtis Bird, uh, the chicken hawk <laughs> over there at, at Georgia State, um, are both from Waterloo, Iowa. And so she edited and conceived of this huge 400-year project for the New York Times Sunday Magazine that came out in August of 2019 and took off like Promethean fire, right? Nicole is the author and the editor of really the most consequential piece of writing by a Black person to, to hit mass pop culture in American history. And that's the 1619 Project. And so what that project does, and the subtitle is really important here, it's a new origin story. So it makes race and racism and anti-racism central to the 400-year history of the United States, right? So even before 1776, Jamestown, Virginia, the British colony, British colonial North America, what's going to become the United States. Conservatives became very, very angry because thousands of K through 12 teachers started to use the multimedia pedagogical toolkit that came with the 1619 Project, which has since expanded exponentially, by the way, right? Um, they tried something under Trump called the 1776 Commission that went nowhere. It bombed. It had no legs, okay? Got a group of conservative historians to say this was BS, this was anti-American. It bombed. A conservative blogger comes up with the idea of saying, what if we call the 1619 Project and anything that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, critical race theory, Marxist-based critical race theory. Bam, that's how you got CRT. And what conservatives did, the GOP did, is you always go back to the culture wars because it's a party that has no ideas because it's committed to authoritarian, anti-democratic fascism. So when you don't have any ideas and you're committed to that, you go back to the culture wars. The first line of the culture wars is always that black and brown people are trying to sleep with your daughters and your wives. That's the first line. The second line is that they're trying to indoctrinate your kids. You do those two things together, you've got a winning formula and a winning strategy. So by the time you say, look, they're trying to indoctrinate your white kids to make them feel bad, that's just one degree away from to kill a mockingbird and saying they're trying to sleep and sexually assault your white women. That's what's going on there. So it's a very visceral stuff. So you've got the parents in Florida where Mike lives. You got the parents in Arizona, Texas, where I live, going on and on and on about something that they know absolutely nothing about, right? And they want to assert their parental rights when somebody's trying to teach anti-racism, but there's no way they want to uh, just homeschool all their kids because they need the kids in K through 12, as we've seen through the pandemic, K through 12 public schools that, by the way, Black folks invented in South Carolina during Reconstruction. Black folks invented the public school system. That's why Thomas Miller, who I talk about in my book, we were eight years in power. Ta-Nehisi Coates has a, his book, the title of that, in 1895, says we are eight years in power. We rebuilt the levees, the bridges, the public schools. We invested in anti-poverty, what they call almshouses, hospitals. And now you are excluding us from the reconstructed South Carolina we built. Right. So that's our story. Everybody who's 
enjoying K through 12 education, who's enjoying birthright citizenship, you're welcome. That was black people. Dr. Joseph, I want to ask you because I want to get to this op-ed piece that you wrote on Maryland's first black governor, uh, another Caribbean man like ourselves here, or I believe a Jamaican man, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you wrote about Westmore winning, obviously, in Maryland, and he beat out a Trump candidate, a MAGA Republican candidate. And obviously, the previous governor, Larry Hogan, was more of a was more of a moderate Republican, yeah. let's call it. But you wrote about how Westmore could be the next rising star in the Democratic Party. We actually were supposed to have Westmore on uh, our program when we did our live DC show. He was a little busy uh, campaigning, but couldn't <laughs> make it. But um, give us your thoughts first uh, on uh, tell the people a little bit about what you wrote in the op-ed piece, and then give us a little bit of your thoughts on on Wes as a leader and and how he was able to win and become the first black governor in Maryland state history. Oh, you know, I've I've met Westmore, um, you know, in Boston when I was at Tufts University. I I've read the other Westmore. I followed his career um, at the Robin Hood Foundation and in his run for governor. You know, I think he's um, outstanding. You know, one of the things I wrote is that, you know, Westmore's election is something that should make Americans, um, all Americans proud, irrespective of ideological backgrounds, because he's only the third black governor. I wish that Stacey Abrams, uh, who in my mind was was really robbed of the gubernatorial uh, victory in 2018, if everybody who wanted to vote for her had free and fair access, she would have been the first black woman governor in 2018. And she would have been running for reelection in 2022. So her history, and she still helped save American democracy with Warnock and Ossoff. But it's important to understand that Stacey Abrams becomes really a very, very important figure, but also somebody who is stymied by the same kind of shenanigans and voter suppression that was innovated during the first reconstruction. So that being said, Wes Moore is only the third black per person, but it's all been men, L. Douglas Wilder and Deval Patrick, um, and now Wes Moore to be ever be elected in a general election um, governor. We had PBS Pinchback served as acting governor uh, and lieutenant governor in, in Louisiana during reconstruction. Um, is hugely important for us because I think what Wes Moore did was run a progressive campaign, but a progressive campaign that told, I think, a very optimistic story about Maryland. And he talked about basically baby bonds for every single kid in Maryland. He talked about racial justice and equity and leaving no one behind. It was very progressive, but the story he told was really important. He told a reconstructionist story that was very, very optimistic one where racial, where multiracial democracy um, is the strength of Maryland in the country uh, rather than one rather than one that really focuses on the opposition. And I think that's hugely important. I think black people and black leaders who then have a universal appeal are always at their best when they're very realistic and clear eyed about the challenges ahead, but they're also able to eloquently articulate the opportunities that are ahead as well, right? Because you got to give people the same, the, the, the both, right? And I think he's a very, very hopeful uh, figure. Um, but the hope, I, I agree with Mariam Kaba, who's somebody I learned from and who I teach. Um, who's the prison abolitionist, hope is a discipline and you get the hope by doing the work. That's how you get the hope. You fuel your own personal hope by doing the work. Not, mo not Monday morning quarterbacking, you actually do the work. So you're right there, you're, 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 you're canvassing, you're in the streets 
You're doing whatever it is that you can do to be part of movements for justice. I think Wes Moore is hugely, um, has huge potential um, um, in terms of yes, running for president. Um, and I think he has, you know, the very fact that he has a military background, he's also a Rhodes Scholar. Um, you know, he lived in Baltimore in his 20s. Uh, you know, he was born in Tacoma. Uh, he lived in the Bronx, right? He's got many, many different diverse experiences, you know, married, kids, uh, served in the military in Afghanistan. I, I think that he's a home run um, for us. And I think it's 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 great because we need generational change. You know, the current president is 80 years old. Uh, we need generational change. Um, and I think Wes Moore could be that that figure. So I'm rooting for him. And I think that he's uh, interested in a very inclusive kind of democracy. He's announced from day one, he wants a team that looks like Maryland. And I love that because like I said at the start of this, Mike, you know, the strength of the country is actually multiracial democracy. That's the strength of it. That's the strength. The strength of the country is where you get us all in a room together and that sister over there who's a Muslim, that brother over there who's queer, uh, that 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 Native American, that you know, the white person, the black person, the worker, uh, the tech person, the priest, the prisoner, all get together, right? Um, and and you only get weakness when you allow our history um, to divide us instead of potentially actually serving as a binder for us, something that provides us a context for the kind of coalitions and really solidarity more than allyship. I grew up in a union household, uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, East 92nd Street, uh, 1199 SCIU. We were in solidarity with one another, you know? So I've been on picket lines. Um, that's not allyship, that's solidarity. That that That's something deeper, right? And so that's something that you live and die for. And that's an oath that you don't break when you're in solidarity. Those folks, you know, Stokely Carmichael and the people I've written about, they were in solidarity with, Mexican-American workers, with Black sharecroppers, Malcolm X, with folks who were in prison. Malcolm did seven years in prison. They, they never broke those bonds, ever, ever. That's what I'm saying. The solidarity is not something that you break. That's that's an oath. You don't, you don't break that. So I think Wes Moore has a real opportunity. Maryland has a great opportunity, but the nation. So he's got me really excited as you can tell about, about his, his political future, but also helping all of us. But I think we can do it better than we did with Obama if we get another shot getting a black president where we have to co-create and we can't elect him and just say, you got it. And then you go back home. You got to continue to put pressure on and continue to organize and co-create the world that you want to build with him. Yeah. Yep. Totally agree on that front. Uh, Dr. Peniel Joseph, you can go get his books wherever books are sold. The Third Reconstruction American Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. If you're a student at the University of Texas, you are very fortunate to have this man guiding you. He's the founding director over at the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy over at UT in Austin. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph, for hopping on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime. Continued success to you, sir. And please stay safe. Thank you. It was so good to be with both of you. You know, thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to read the book as well. This episode is brought to you by Russell Stover's Chocolate. Nick, it's time to make this holiday season the sweetest season. And you can do that thanks to the delicious treats from the good folks over at Russell Stover's Chocolate. What are you getting over from Russell Stover's Chocolate this holiday season for the for the loved ones in the Zaveri household? I think everyone here knows about my feelings for preference. 
you know, we talk about this all the time. Any service I'm using, I want to be able to customize it. On the website, if you're over at russellstover.com, just go to the top of the page. You're going to see a button. It's one of my favorite options. Create your own. You also can choose gifts. You can choose holiday. I'm a customization person, so I'm already on the site as we're talking about this. Yeah, that's right. A multi-purpose. That's right. Multitasking. Multitasking. There it is. Keep that, keep that in. Um, but I'm just designing a holiday set for the girls. You know, they're all milk chocolate people, so I'm gonna find you know some real some just real goodies. And but this ain't Russell Stover's first rodeo, Mike. They've been around for a while. That's right. That's right. You are so funny. You know that uh, gifts for the holiday season, like Nick mentioned, you can head to russellstovers.com today or click on the link in our show notes. More importantly, for a special discount, apply to checkout, create a bunch of your own items that you want to get somebody for this holiday season. 20% off $45 or more, 25% off $65 or more, 30% off $100 or more. Let's make this holiday season the sweetest head to the link in our show notes right now for a discount on this amazing chocolate thanks to the good folks at russell stovers all right our thank yous there to dr joseph dr pineo joseph uh if you are a university of texas a ut austin student down there and, and you have him as one of your professors you are very fortunate that man knows a lot um I don't I don't think I can remember that much stuff about historical events. But again, like he mentioned, I read a lot of this stuff and then I'm teaching a lot of this stuff. So I got to study a lot of this stuff. So it stays with me. And then pen to paper, I can articulate it in books. Uh, give me some of your quick takeaways here uh, on Dr. Joseph and his book and what he kind of talked about. I, I regret that when we recorded that interview, uh, what played out this past weekend with Kyrie Irving and and some stuff that happened with potentially his return to the court and what we saw in, in, in a black uh, group that was outside of the Barclays Center, very anti-Semitic group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, showing solidarity and support for Kyrie Irving. I forgot to mention that stuff to him, but again, at the time it hadn't happened yet. Uh, but talking about Kyrie in general, I wanted to get his takeaways on that. But what were some of your takeaways on, on Dr. Joseph before we go to our final segment? Yeah, you know, like, like so many historians we've had on this show, um, you know, just sheds light on an important period of history that, you know, we don't hear nearly enough about, you know, one of the things that's great about his book is just drawing the through line from reconstruction to the civil rights act to the election of Barack Obama, you know, and, but also does it from the lens of, and if I sound like I'm selling the book, I have a copy of the book and I highly recommend you all get it too. Um, but he does this incredible job of telling this story, you know, through his own life experience. So it really feels like a narrative biography as you read it. So it's a really readable text, um, but it's well-researched. I mean, his work is incredible. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to tease this out, folks, but, you know, we've had so many historians on who've written so many incredible books that I, at some point, I'm going to have to put something out to everyone just to sort of as hot links to these shows, because honestly, they're textbook supplements, folks. Like if there's something in your understanding of American history that you just want to do a deep dive on, we got you covered. Can we please talk? I've lost track of how many great historians we've had on this show, and I would include Dr. Peniel Joseph among them. Yeah, no, it's very well said. He he was great, fantastic to listen to. Go check out his books. He's wrote he's written two, like he mentioned that the Sword and the Shield one is being adapted into a series for Disney Plus. I'm excited to check out what that will look like. Uh, before we sign off here, uh, and you're listening to this episode on Thanksgiving week, uh, we wish you and yours a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and please stay safe during this holiday season. Nick, what is something that you are, or a few things, 
that you are thankful for this holiday season as people are getting ready to uh, meet with their families, hopefully have some turkey, watch some football, good games on Thursday. Uh, what is something that uh, Dr. Nicholas Severi, he's not a doctor, I just gave him that title. Uh, what is something you're thankful for, sir? Yeah, the, the the doctor is the the other member. <laughs> the other, <laughs> yeah, apparently the Laura Severi. That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah. First and foremost, I'm 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 thankful as you bring her up. I'm thankful for my wife. Yeah, my my life partner. Um, you know, I'm thankful obviously for my daughters. Just being, um, I'm always grateful to be a parent. It's the best gift I I'm reminded of myself every Father's Day, every my for my birthday. Um, so I I always sit in that gratitude. You know, Thanksgiving for me is always about about food. We love to cook here, so we already have some great plans for food that we're going to make. Um, it's a time for family. You know, our daughter, our oldest daughter, is already gearing up for Christmas, so we're already going to be you know getting ready for Christmas on that day. At some point, we switch gears, turn on Christmas music, start you know get getting the house ready because she loves that stuff. So, um, you know, being a parent has brought a lot of out of me that joy for these holidays. So, I'm thankful for those things, and yeah, I'm certainly thankful for football. But it's not just football, F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L, ladies and gentlemen. On November 24th, there will also be World Cup games, too. So, you know, whatever type of game you want that has football attached to it, they got you. Yeah, Yeah, World Cup in November has, weird as it is, certainly has its benefits. But those are the things that come up for me. And, of course, I'm thankful for my parents who I'll be seeing Friday and Saturday, actually spending some time with them. But that's that's what I would say in Easton for my gratitude. What about you? I am thankful for a lot of things, um, you know, 2022 and the last couple of years of doing this show has been a lot of fun. So I'm thankful, first and foremost, that people have been so receptive to the show. Good, bad or indifferent. Like I said, if you just want to see the bad and the indifferent. Head to our TikTok channel over at Cameron Please Talk Podcast. You can find a bunch. Uh, whenever we've talked about Joe Rogan, the vaccine, Kyrie Irving, we've gotten the most comments and hate. Uh, nothing like that one comment of that one person. What's the name of the show? So that way I know not to listen to it. And I just thought that was so funny. And I responded back. It's called high hater person with no show. Um, I am thankful for comments like that. I'm thankful for what we continue to do. I'm thankful for an announcement that will be coming soon about the future of this program and where we're moving to and the visibility we'll get. And the fact that people believe in our voices and what we're doing here with respect to news commentary and talking about things that are playing out in the public sphere and really talking to people who know what they're talking about, right? People that are informed and have informed perspective, like you just heard from Dr. Peniel Joseph, who has studied history and is currently teaching it at one of the largest research universities here in the country. Uh, I'm thankful for my family for being incredibly supportive for everything that I continue to do and we continue to do as a family. Uh, I'm just thankful for old bosses that have been so open and receptive to certain things. Uh, one coworker who wasn't receptive, you could check out on IHaveAPodcast.com. I was recently featured and mentioned who that person was. I'm not thankful for her, and I'm sure she's not thankful for me either when she reads that, but uh, you could check out that piece about our show. But um, I am thankful. You know what? Funny enough, I am thankful for people like that. Um, quick backstory, because you know I mentioned it in the article, but it was just somebody that just didn't understand that while this was a hobby to you and I, Nick, we did this on our off time. We did this when we're not you know, working our day jobs, right? We do this between the hours of 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and we do it on weekends. And 
we dedicated a lot to this in terms of building a show rundown and guest list and writing out questions and researching topics and reading books. We do a lot and we put a lot into this and the comments that she made to me made me realize that people don't understand uh, that you're not devoted 24 seven to your job. And if you are, um, I think you need to look inward. I don't, that's not a company thing. That's a you thing. Um, because you, sh nobody should stop you from doing what it is you want to do, especially with respect to your private time. And those comments that she made to me at the time made me want to work hard to not only disprove everything that she's saying, and not so much, not so much like a show you, Hey, here you go. See, told you I would do it. But it's just the fact that people live with this mentality of prove it to me again. Even if you do it, prove it to me again. They just keep moving the bar or you'll never get there. You know, when we first started this show, I had a friend from high school. Well, the podcast market is crowded. Yeah, great. So what? What does that mean? If we devote seriousness and time to it and we put in the effort that we expect to get back out and reciprocated, uh, we will be successful. And we know we have. And with that, with the announcement that's coming soon about the future of this show, it shows that we have actually put in everything we want and deserve into this program and have made it successful, not only in our eyes, but in other people's eyes that matter, right? And, and that's the listening public. So I'm thankful for each and every one of you that do listen to this program. As you hear the music playing us off, one more for you, Mrs. Zaveri, before the music sh shuts off and like the Oscars. Yeah, you I, would be, I would be remiss for, yeah, I would be remiss for, for not being grateful for you, you know, for our friendship. Um, yes, the show, but the fact that, you know, you and I communicate the way we do as often as we do, good, bad, and different, Raiders, whatever. It's, you know, um, I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for the, that it's helped to spawn this incredible program. Uh, my wife likes to remind me now that you have now overtaken her to the person I, I text the most. Most. So uh, process that how you will, but uh, grateful for our friendship, my friend. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then likewise too, buddy. And shout out to, to your wife, Laura, there. Uh, and all the work that she does, you know how great she's been with what we went through with our family and, and my little daughter. So shout out to her. Um, shout out to each and every one of you. Please stay safe this holiday season. Video, if you want to see the interview with Dr. Joseph that we did, check out our on our YouTube channel, Can We Please Talk Podcast. Hit subscribe, please. Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. Leave us a five-star review and comment. Stay safe. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Shout out to the Iranian men's soccer team. You know, today during their match, did not sing the national anthem in solidarity to the incredible work of women that have been fighting um, bands been fighting oppression in their country and that played out uh on the pitch today so shout out to you all for your bravery and continuing to support uh, an important cause have a safe holiday and fight for what you believe in as well i'm nick saberi we'll see everybody next time sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.